So Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Let me start in uh, verse 9 just to get a sense of the, uh, of the context. I know it's a short passage. Matthew 2, verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I love preaching from this uh, passage. Uh, I uh, do so, I think I have done so uh, for uh, the, fast, the past 10 years or so during the season of uh, Epiphany. Uh, this is uh, an appropriate uh, passage, but I will say this, that uh, I think that these uh, wise men seem to get a little more attention than they should You know where I'm going with this. Uh, The scene is not about the wise men. The scene is about Jesus. And I want to uh, always correct, uh, in a sense, the way we read this passage by reminding us of who is important. What seems to fall into the background of this passage uh, very often, and, and, and unfortunately so, what tends to fall into the background is this picture of God's uh, plan for redemption, his fulfillment of the covenant of grace, uh, advancing forward, rolling right through this passage. Now, it's not to say that these uh, wise men are uh, just, uh, you know, figures on a chessboard, uh, little robots of God uh, playing in a screenplay of sorts. Uh, That's not what I'm saying about the Magi, but I want us to understand that this is God's covenant of grace rolling forward through this passage. And what these wise men are doing is they're confirming the promises of God to save his people through the covenant of grace. So, uh, here we are this morning uh, looking at this passage, and I'm saying to you this passage is about the, the advancement of the gospel, the gospel being made known. And as we respond to this passage, uh, there is a positive response to the passage to believe in the gospel of God. Uh, but there's also a negative response uh, in that if you don't respond to this gospel, woe is you. Now, three things I want to say as we make our way through this passage. First, Jesus is the central figure. I want to, I want to, I want to show that to you. But I also don't want us to miss how shocking this scene actually is. It's really uh, an unusual, uh, almost absurd scene. And so Jesus is the central figure, but I want us to see that the scene itself is shocking. And then finally, I want to end showing us that the promise of God's grace rolls forward unstoppably. So God's unstoppable promise of grace is shown in this passage centered on Jesus Christ. Let's, let's, uh, let's start there, that Jesus is the central uh, figure. Uh, the central figure is not the various uh, magi or wise men. We don't know uh, how many number of them uh, there are. We usually uh, see pictures of three wise men, but that's merely a reference to the 
to what? The three gifts. So, but the central figure, figure is not these uh, wise men, and it's not even the star, but it's Jesus. What, is, what exactly is unfolding here in this passage? Well, these wise men are leading men from the east. We're not giving, given specific details where they're from, but we are told that they're from the east, and that, that's relevant. These men would be uh, very educated. Uh, they would likely be very uh, wealthy. They have a kind of uh, lifestyle that would allow them uh, time to uh, study. But they also would be very respected men uh, in their society. Uh, there's a sense in which these are Ivy League uh, scholars who serve as advisors uh, to uh, their uh, king, to their leaders. Uh, these would be the best and brightest of their society. And we often think that they're uh, merely uh, astronomers, but they're not. They're students not merely of the skies. They're students of the written word. Uh, that's what a scholar is. They pour over words. In Matthew 2, verse 1, they see a star, but it's not merely the star. Uh, keep in mind that they don't, uh, they don't make this journey uh, merely because of a celestial observation. Uh, the celestial observation is associated with a figure. Uh, when they arrive at the beginning of Matthew 2, they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And they say, We saw not just any star. We saw uh, his star. There is an association with a man. And so uh, these wise men, leaders of their society, uh, they are scholars who are combing through all of the books that they can get their hands on, all the manuscripts, all of the, the tablets. They're uh, going through uh, scores and scores of data. They're uh, listening to uh, oral accounts from uh, very wise, smart people. Uh, this is not simply an astronomical field trip. They're there to learn about a person. Uh, I think it's uh, rather interesting to contemplate when it is these men uh, saw the star. When they uh, arrive in Israel, they go straight to the capital city, to Jerusalem. And what they say is they say that they saw a star that coincides with the birth of a king. Uh, the, the star is the not just about a person, it's about the birth of a person. And then later when, when Herod uh, just absolutely loses his temper and kills all of the male children of Bethlehem and the surrounding region, uh, he uh, kills who? Those who are through the age of two, age two and younger. And Matthew 2.16 says that he does so according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so then I ask you, uh, how long ago did the wise men see the star of the king's birth? I want you to just think about this. Matthew doesn't tell us exactly. That, that's one of the problems with the Bible, isn't it, if it is a problem. A lot of the questions that we ask aren't uh, answered directly. But boy, wouldn't you like to know more details about this story? I'd like to know uh, how long ago the wise men saw uh, this star. Uh, think about this. Their trip uh, from the east to Jerusalem probably took about a month. 
But as they talk to Herod, uh, the star is associated with the birth of Jesus. And then Herod responds by killing all those male children, age two and younger. And so it is more than possible that these uh, wise men have been studying this star for two years. Watching it. Pondering it. And not just the star, but the, but the literature associated with that star, looking for references to this celestial object in the history of world literature for two years. Of course, Matthew doesn't say, but it's unique that, that Herod would go for all those children up to the age of two to kill them. And then uh, these wise men, uh, as they're uh, following uh, this star, perhaps even studying the star for a couple of years, well, what's, what, uh, what uh, is the, uh, the impetus for the rapturous joy? Why so much joy? It's not just the star. Certainly not if they've been studying it for two years. The star has brought them not to a region or to a village or even to a house. What does Matthew say? It came to rest over the place where the child was. The star brought them to a man. And then in verse 10 of our passage, boy, it's just absolutely consumed with words of praise. They rejoiced excessively with mega joy. Uh, That's my translation. But the joy words are just remarkable. Uh, Verse 10, it has merely eight words. Uh, Four of the words are when they saw the star. And then four of the words are all about the rejoicing and the praising at where that star has led them to this child. Now, the wise men are important, but they're not that important. And the star, it's important, but it's not that important. Everything is about Jesus. That's why I've drawn our attention to these two verses that that would stand out to us. When they enter the house, what do they do? They go straight to the child. And the way uh, uh, verse uh, 11 is told, it seems as though there's, there's very uh, little pause at all. They go straight to the child, <laughs> fall before him and worship him. Everything in this scene is about the child. Now, that's, that ought to be pretty shocking to us. But, but let, me, let me move on here. Let's, let's set Jesus aside for a moment. And, and, and let's just acknowledge the fact that this really is a very absurd scene. I mean, even though we know that the focus of the, this event is on an almost two-year-old boy, the scene's still outrageous. I mean, Bethlehem. It's a tiny little village, five miles south of Jerusalem, on the edge of the desert of Judah, on a rocky spur surrounded by fig and olive orchards. Of course, King King David was was from Bethlehem. But let's be honest, it's nearly a thousand years ago. And since then, the village, uh, well, the village has just dropped into insignificance. Even Micah, who's writing some a couple hundred years after David, uh, even in that 200-year time span, uh, Micah can acknowledge that Bethlehem's a pretty insignificant place. Nothing happens there. Even five miles away, Herod didn't consider it significant for any reason at all. 
He had to ask his own scholars to do a little bit of research and brief him because it's Bethlehem. And so uh, how surprising it would have been then for a large retinue of foreign guests to arrive one evening or to arrive uh, early uh, morning. The the wise men, however many there are, uh, they would not have been traveling alone. They would have been traveling with companions, many of them, men carrying tents and and food and and cooking tools for the journey. Uh, Several uh, camels, uh, I think that reference to camels likely comes from Isaiah 60. We're going to look at Isaiah 60. Uh, They uh, would have probably been traveling on horseback. But several animals, we don't even know how many would be in this party. There could be as many as 40 or 50 people involved. Descending upon Bethlehem. They would have dressed differently than people had ever seen in the sleepy village. Uh, They would have dressed lavishly. Their language was different. They uh, spoke surely Greek, uh, perhaps even Aramaic. Uh, But they would be different in almost every way. And they came to uh, not merely the village. They, uh, they stop in Jerusalem only to get someplace else. They, they come to one house in the village. It could be that Jesus was born in the very stable of the inner court of this very house. But this body of foreign figures, notable in everything about them, their dress, their words... Well, the whole village would awaken. This would be worth getting up to see. And Matthew is sure to tell us that they didn't just stand outside of the house. Look at verse 11. They actually enter the house. Surely the whole party can't fit in the house. But the wise men, the notable figures, the ones responsible for this journey, right into the house they go. We're not told, by the way, how they departed, but uh, Matthew 2, verse 12 says that they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. But when were they dreaming? You think it's possible they stayed the night in this sleepy little village? Maybe they stayed a day or two in Bethlehem again. We don't know. But I want us to understand that uh, a very strange scene has descended upon a very insignificant village. The scene, it's almost absurd. I was uh, very delighted uh, to uh, hear Dr. Kane's message last week on the value of the Old Testament for understanding uh, the book of Revelation. Revelation makes no sense without the Old Testament. If there's no Old Testament, uh, there also, I think, is very little understanding uh, how Jesus can be the central figure of this scene in such a remarkable, even absurd way. We need the Old Testament to tell us how this outrageous scene makes sense in God's plan for redemption. But I will say this, uh, imagine if we didn't have the Old Testament and if what I have said thus far was all I had to say about this scene. And then you would think, well, this Jesus, uh, what a very unique childhood he had. Uh, And and it it makes sense because we expect uh, famous people, notable people to have some some rather uh, notable, interesting, ironic, fascinating things about their background. 
And, and I think that's how, we would, uh, that's how we would weigh Jesus. If there is no Old Testament, then Jesus is the central figure only in the way that a famous person might have an ironic past, a, a business mogul who started out poverty-stricken. How inspiring those stories can be. A famous writer who uh, was dyslexic and learned to read late. A comedian with a very dark and tragic past. An actor with an uh, introverted temperament and so on and so on and so on. Would that be all that we would say about Jesus? A great figure and what a crazy past he had. So many odd things surrounded uh, this uh, great figure, but... That's often the case with great figures. There's strangeness in their past. But Jesus is the central figure of this shocking scene because he's the central figure of God's covenant of grace. And that's what the Old Testament tells us. That's how we're to understand this passage. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The promise of God's grace is absolutely unstoppable. I've often wondered at the gullibility of these wise men. Now, they aren't gullible at all. But it sure seems to me that they worship rather quickly. Does it seem that way to you? They just jump on the scene and they immediately start worshiping Jesus. They don't seem to have that that intellectual disposition that would critique first and believe later. Uh, That would stop and ask some pressing questions before you do something like uh, fall on your face in a poor person's home. They seem quick. But Matthew 2 verse 11 is so audaciously filled with adoration. It really really can throw you off. Grown men falling down before a poor little boy in a small house in a small insignificant village. Matthew tells us that they worship him. I mean, never mind uh, the gifts themselves. But traveling more than a thousand miles for this Two years of study, all of my education for this? Rejecting a pagan upbringing, possibly rejecting my own family for this? Returning back to where I started, returning to the east, returning to my city as a changed man in an unchanged family and an unchanged city for this? This is why I've struggled. T.S. Eliot writes a wonderful poem uh, about this scene called The Journey of the Magi. And Eliot actually contemplates what it may have been like after this scene, uh, going back to where they came from. And Eliot says it this way. He says that in that birth, that birth of Jesus was their death. They have to return to pagan families. They have to return to a pagan city as converted believers in Jesus Christ, the boy king In his birth, there's a kind of death. Why would the Magi do this? It just seems like they're too gullible and they're too quick to worship. But what if there's more? What if if there's more that we're not taking into account when we we look at the scene? What if the wise men understand this two-year period, this one trip, this one evening, to be evidence of actions put in place from before creation that they might glorify the one true king? 
What if this night, this particular evening, is one bead in a necklace of God's grace begun in the plan of the triune God from before the foundations of the world? What if the Magi believe that? Well, I think they do. I think that they understand the significance of this event. What if this star was actually created for this moment? They believe that. What if this house, this village, this nation exists for one reason, to pour out the Son of God in time and space? I think they believe that as well. What if my own birth, my own upbringing, my own education finds its highest consummation in the worship of this almost two-year-old boy? Well, I think they believe that as well. Uh, there's this, a couple of uh, matters that I want to bring to your attention. One of them is the matter of King Solomon. The other is the matter of Isaiah. We know a lot about King Solomon. In 1 Kings 4, we uh, know that God gave him wisdom, a wisdom that surpassed the, the wisdom of the ages. But the Bible says this specifically, 1 Kings 4, uh, verse 29 and then 34. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt and people of All nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now we know that Solomon wrote about Jesus. We know that all of the Proverbs, we we know that the words that we heard this morning in Psalm 72, uh, these uh, words are about Jesus. What if the Magi had access to these words? I suppose if anyone were to collect a reputation formed 900 years ago, the wise men, they'd be those kinds of people, wouldn't they? They'd be the kinds of people who pay attention to dusty old manuscripts written more than 900 years ago. These would be those men. And as they read about the reputation and notoriety and the wisdom of King Solomon that started from Jerusalem and expanded as far as even their own environs, they would understand that this King Solomon was a man who was writing about this baby boy. But there's also another matter, and that's the matter of Isaiah 60. Because I I think that these wise men would be the kind of men uh, who would know a vast amount of wisdom. And there was a figure in history who himself was known as having a vast amount of wisdom. And I think they would know King Solomon and that he wrote about Jesus. But then there's Isaiah 60. Isaiah preached in Jerusalem some 200 years or so after the death of King Solomon. He prophesied that the northern kingdom would fall to Assyria, and then he watched it happen. He also prophesied that Judah would fall to Babylon and that the Persian authorities would would allow the people to return. And so uh, victoriously, uh, Isaiah anticipated the ministry of Daniel in Babylon who spread the knowledge of Israel among the people of the east and that those people would come back to Jerusalem. But Isaiah also prophesied, about a glorious future when people around the world, foreigners, 
outsiders of the uh, sphere of Israel would be drawn to the Lord through the people of Israel. And he says this in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And he also, uh, Isaiah, describes uh, what that would look like just a few verses later. And this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheva shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. That's Isaiah 60, verse 6. I believe that, that passage is known by these wise men. They would know about Isaiah, Solomon, and Isaiah, significant figures of Israel. I I believe that the wise men would have learned about a star, perhaps from Numbers chapter 24. Numbers 24 mentions uh, a a star that uh, that marks uh, Jacob. Uh, And this is an oracle that comes from Balaam of a city called Pethor. Uh, Pethor is probably uh, closer to uh, Mesopotamia than it is to Bethlehem. The wise men would have known about a star marking a birth. The wise men would have known uh, about this king. This is very clear in the beginning of Matthew chapter 2. They would know uh, about this uh, baby boy who was born to be king from Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 30 and Zechariah chapter 9. But here from Isaiah, they would learn something else. They will learn about their own special place in God's unfolding plan of redemption. They will learn something about their role in God's covenant of grace. Gentiles, foreigners who would seem to have no part in the people of Israel in Isaiah 60 have a special part in the glory of this great God and his great son. They're not gullible. The very significance of this absurd scene comes from the fact that these wise men are men of words, men who study, men who critique. And they're also men who believe that this Jesus is the salvation of the world. And there is no greater king than this baby. I have two messages for us to to conclude with. I think that very often as Christians, we denigrate the fact that we are wrapped up into the plan of redemption through faith. We profess faith, but we continue to live our lives as if they're uninterrupted by our own plans. We continue to live lives that are our lives, my design, your design, crafting our own future. And all the while professing faith in Jesus. And I think what we're doing is we're denigrating the fact that if we profess faith in Jesus, we are united to him and we are wrapped up in his plan. His plan supersedes everything about my life. We're going to talk about this next week when we open back, uh, back into Romans chapter 12 and, and we'll understand more about our lives being living sacrifices. We sacrifice our plan because we're wrapped up into God's covenant of grace. 
If you're here this morning as a believer, I would simply ask you this. Would you travel the distance of these wise men to see Jesus? Would you set aside your own dignity, your own resume, your own reputation to not only travel that distance, but to lay on the dirt floor of a humble house in an insignificant village just to behold your king? I wonder if as Christians we denigrate the fact that this scene is God's glorious plan and we are a part of that plan because of his grace. This is a reminder to us as Christians, but I think there's a reminder to uh, those who are here who are not ready to profess faith in Jesus. These are unnamed men, men who seem to be outside the fold of the history of Israel. Uh, Even the contents of the Bible, they get very little attention. But these unnamed men of the East, they're converted by the power of the gospel. They lose nothing by their distance. They lose nothing by their ethnicity. They lose nothing. They're the kind of people who grew up um, in ignorance of God. They've done nothing with their lives that would make God bend his will to them and favor them. They're sinners. And yet God converts them. The promise of God's grace in Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Even these men can come to him. Why not you? There's a message for the Christian. There's a message for those who are not ready to profess faith. If the latter is you, take note of these wise men. Seemingly nobodies far, far away, and yet God unfolds them. Well, this is a scene about Jesus. This is a strange scene, but this is a scene that makes sense only when we consider uh, that God's covenant of grace is unstoppable. Would you please pray with me? Father, would you be with us as a people who belong to you, and would you remind us that we belong to you? And would you be with those who are here this morning who are doubting? And would you remind them that their failures are not defining? Even as they profess faith in Jesus and are uncertain about how he is working in their lives, your covenant promises are unstoppable. And you will give your children eternal perseverance. And then for those who are here who do not profess faith in you, would you remind them that this story is not just a story for the history books, a quizzical event in the life of someone who seems to be great, that this is a story of you claiming for yourself your people from the far reaches of the world. Thank you for your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen.